Hello, and welcome to episode 113 of Two Shots and Talk. Um, as I mentioned last week, I was doing a collab cast with Nikia Pope for Black History Month. So this will be the second installment of that. And this episode is entitled A Woman's Work. All right, let's take these shots and get into it. Cheers. You are tuned into the Two Shots and Talk podcast. Two Shots and Dots and Dots. Podcast. Podcast. Hi guys, welcome to the second installment of the Special Black History Project between Latitia Hunt and I. I am Nakia Pope. I am a speaker. I am a content creator, and overall, I like to call myself a purpose pusher. Um, I, we are going to be collaborating today on the second episode, and I have Latitia Hunt here as well. Say hello to the people. Hello, people. Uh, I am Latitia Hunt. And I am a content curator. I am a podcast host. I am a blogger. I do a little bit of everything. And like you mentioned, I am very excited about this collab that we are doing to educate the masses or to put more information out there and to kind of just do our own little celebration dance for Black people for Black History Month. Okay, perfect. So, oh, no, go ahead, TT. I was just about to say, if you listened in last week, that was our introduction. So we kind of just briefly talked about black history, what it means to us, gave a little bit of history on it, dropped a few jewels, uh, challenged you all to go out and do some research. So hopefully you all did it. And we just want to say that this episode, uh, episode two, is entitled A Woman's Work. So as the title uh, suggests, we will be talking about women, black women, to be in particular. Right. So, so we wanted to dedicate a whole episode to black women because um, we feel that black women just don't get the shine that we are, that we need, that we, the justice that we are due, right? Um, right. You know, the black woman is the most, I would say, negated, the, the negated figure, like, you know, we are always on the back burner, we're always coming mm-hmm. up short in some capacity, you know, you know, I've heard it said before, like, we have the hardest job, like, we black and a woman, it's just like, you know, so I've heard that said so many times before, right, um, but we definitely wanted to be intentional about shifting the narrative in this particular episode, right, because we as black women understand that <laughs> we are everything, right? So the the, the term that's everything. Um, so the term that's just, you know, worth in our day and age, black girl magic is just synonymous, you know, with all things it's like moving the culture forward, right? Because we think about where black women are today, you know, by some standards we're still you know, marginalized in some capacity, but by our standards, like, we are moving our lives and our culture forward. Like, we are not allowing our lives to be dictated about somebody else's thoughts about who we are as a, as a woman, as a person, because you don't know me. <laughs> like, you just don't know me. You don't know capable of, you don't know what God has gifted me with and entrusted me with. You don't know the visions that I see in my head. You don't know how I want to change, you know, my the, the just my line, even going back to the legacy of the people that come before me. Like, how am I going to change my legacy and, you know, my family and my mother? You know, you don't know those things, right? So we are choosing to 
take our own lives in our own hands and create the life that we want to live. Like women are starting businesses. Like it's nobody's business, like successful businesses. We are sharing with each other. We are helping other women. We are teaching other women. We're doing more things together. You know, you think about collaboration over competition, right? We are doing so many things that we wanted to take the time to have this episode to dedicate to the black woman who is constantly progressing, who is moving forward, who is designing and living a life that she wants to live. So this is the second installment of woman's work because, you know, I think the term a woman's work is so befitting because every woman has work the way I see it, you know, the way I was brought up. You know, we all have duties and responsibilities, but now we are defining our own work. It's not just for me to be at home cooking you food, barefeet, and pushing out babies. Like, I don't know who work right. that is. Like, <laughs> I'm so much more than that. Like, granted, I'm going to do those things too, but that's not all that it is to me. Right. And like the first episode, we talked about kind of approaching black history from an unconventional standpoint. So if this was the normal black history podcast, of course, we're going to start it off with, with you know, Frederick Douglass or somebody of that sort. And we just kind of wanted to be unconventional and all that we do and be very intentional. And so Nikki and I, if you haven't picked up, are both black women who love black women and support black women. And uh, we just want to tell the stories about the black women that you may or may not know. As you mentioned a little bit earlier that the black woman is the most negated person in America. Yeah, that's true. The whole quote is uh, the black woman is the most disrespected person in America, the most unprotected person in America, and the most neglected person in America. Yeah, however, like you mentioned, we are the most educated. We're starting the most businesses. You know, we're on the front the forefront protesting for our fallen brothers at the hands of police brutality. You know, we got Auntie Maxine Waters and Angela Rye up there combating all these white white supremacists all by themselves. And then, you know, no matter how educated and how knowledgeable about something, somebody's going to get on TV and talk about how their wig is lopsided because that's how they do black people in America, black women in particular. Um, So... Of course, we know about Coretta and Rosa and the Rubies. And so um, Nikki and I kind of went and did some research about some women that are not always, like, in the forefront of the movement, but they definitely had a lot to contribute to it. And so um, I don't know who she – well, I know who she chose, but I didn't know them prior to this. And I I feel like vice versa as well. So we're just going to use the opportunity to kind of educate each other on who these women are, how they contribute to the culture, and why they're so important. And hopefully uh, you all get some knowledge from it too. And also, like, comment on the podcast and, you know, send us emails or direct messages if you have any other women that you feel need to be spotlighted, especially during this month. So Nakia was the first uh, woman that you chose. Um, to highlight for a woman's work. Okay, so the first woman that I chose was Elaine Brown, who was the first and the only woman to lead um, the Black Panther Party, right? Um, So Elaine Brown, you know, she, well, let's start with a little background with her. So she, she grew up in the ghettos of North Philadelphia with her mother, um, you know, during her childhood, she she studied classical piano and ballet at a predominantly white elementary school. She continued to, you know, most of her schooling was like with white people. And I thought that alone was very revolutionary because in that time, that could definitely be, you know, challenging. She had very few black friends and she spent most of her time mm-hmm. with her white friends. 
So when she graduated um, the Philadelphia High School for Girls, which is like a public preparatory school for gifted young women, she went on to Temple University. Um, you know, she went there for a little while. She dropped out of Temple. She moved to Los Angeles to become like a songwriter. Um, and while she was there, she enrolled in the University of California. Um, you know, she left there. She attended Mills College. Like, sister was moving, right? I, I guess she was one of those women who was like, listen, if this is not serving me, I'm not interested or passionate about it. Let me move on to something else, um, which I'm that same type of woman. Um, so once she got to California, right, she had no money. So she started working as like a cocktail waitress in a strip club. And while she was there, she met this man um, named J. Richard Kennedy. So he was a married man, a married white fiction writer, um, and they actually became lovers. And so she credited him for being the person that really, like, sparked her interest in, you know, civil rights. He was, like, the first person to really politicize her and really radicalize her um, because mm-hmm. he provided, like, the education of, like, the civil rights movement, capitalism, communism, um, you know, so with that stuff that she was taught by him, she became involved in the black liberation movement. So they lived together for a little while, but ultimately it didn't work maybe because he was married. Um, so that, that could be, that could be a good reason. <laughs> that could be the problem. Like, baby girl just got caught up and we all know how that goes. Um, right. um, so, um, so after that relationship, she started like working at this newspaper called Harrenby, um, she was like the first representative for the Black Student Alliance um, to the Black Congress in California. So after the assassination of Martin Luther King, that's when like her activism really like took a whole new level. And she attended like her first meeting of the LA chapter of the Black Panther Party. So when she first started with the Black Panther Party, um, she was like a rank and what they would call a rank and file member. So basically, was just like low on the totem pole. Um, she started studying literature, and then she started studying, like, Black Panther Park newspaper. Some of her duties was, like, cleaning guns and stuff like that. So it was just like, you know, I guess you just had to come in at the bottom and work your way up. So it just don't get no lower than that. And then so through her efforts, she soon had to set up, help the party to set up its first free breakfast program for children, um, as well as the initial free busing to prison program and the free legal aid program, right? But she was instrumental uh, in setting up all those things, you know, and even in her book, she talked about at that time, like a woman in the Black Panther movement was considered at best irrelevant, right? So when we even talk about the Black Panther Party, a lot of times we always talk about Huey P. Neal, Huey P. Newton, um, Fred, we're talking about uh, Bobby Steele, all these people, right, all these men, but we don't talk about a lot of women unless it's um, Asada Shakur or... Um, Angela Davis. Angela Davis. Angela Davis. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the only two that people love to talk about. Right, when it was so many other women that were doing things and moving, helping to move the efforts and the cause forward. Um, so and can you believe it at that time, you know, at the same time we were fighting for, like, we're saying black power, but it's not like black woman power. Because at that time, like, if a black woman assumed the role of leadership, you know, the men would think that she would be eroding a black man's manhood. And it's like, how? Or <laughs> like. Mm-hmm. Right. During the progress of the black race, it's like, how are we all not fighting for the same thing? Is it different if I'm giving you orders or leading you or telling you what to do and how to do like how to do things? Like, is that threatening you? And you you think about now how some men are threatened by women. Like, could that have been something that has always been, whether it was a racial issue or not, that a man just don't want to just doesn't want to submit to a woman? Um, you know, so yeah. those are some of the thoughts that I was you know having. 
Um, you know. I also think too I, they try to prioritize the struggle, so it's like you know, well, it makes more sense for us to get the black man certain rights and privileges, and you know break them through the the glass ceiling per se in society then we could you know do the black woman and then go from there from there so I just think it was like prioritizing the struggle well that's a valid point look how you said that prioritizing the struggle right so I mean I do agree with that um so you know so even in everyone fighting like it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't enough for the woman to be in a position to really make any decisions right so you so you may be thinking like well how did she even get to the point where you know she became the first woman to lead the black panther party like how did that happen so the tea is that elaine brown was qvp newton's lover right so we already know how that hmm. like, that's your boo your boo got in some trouble but he got some big trouble because he actually he and newton had to um go into exile to cuba because they were charging him with killing a 17-year-old prostitute. So basically he had a trial, and then later on he ended in a hung jury, so he got off of that. Can, but, we, no. can we pause for a second right there? Yes. I'm sorry. I do not mean to be divisive when it comes to black history, but I would like to say that everything that glitters is not gold. And if you follow me on any social media account, you know how much – I talk about, you know, the Black Panther Party and especially being from the Bay Area, like that whole movement is so is so important and so valid to me. However, not everything about it was was positive and, and was shining and shimmery. Just as you mentioned, he had got charged with killing a prostitute. Um, the One of the leaders, Eldridge Cleaver, he wrote a book called Soul on Ice, and it's like recognized all over the world as you know, this great piece of work. However, in the book, he talks about how he mastered the art of raping women, and he would practice on black women so that he can go and rape white women. And so these were people who were, you know, revolutionaries. They were, like, fighting for, for causes within our community. However, they were also raping our women, like women who stood right next to them are, you know, disrespecting them. Just like you said, Elaine Brown, she went from one person's lover to the next person's lover, and that's how she got her clout and so it's just like you know make sure you all do your research and just know that of course these people can be great but nobody is perfect you know they're still humans and they still have certain flaws and especially when it comes to a lot of men that were a, a part of the movement and I'm not trying to take away from anything that they did however they did step on a lot of women and mistreat a lot of women to get to where they're at so don't forget that Okay, one pause. <laughs> yes, no, yes, yes, yes. I'm glad you included that, right, because we just have this cookie-cutter perception of, you know, the Black Panther Party or Martin Luther King and stuff like that, not understanding, or I think oftentimes just forgetting that these are men, right, and if any time I feel like you put a man in a power, given the opportunity, whether it's one time, ten times, twenty times, he's going to abuse that power at some point because that is what people are feeding off of. A lot of times people want the recognition and want the power that comes along with things, right? So when you put somebody in that situation, they feel like invincible in a sense or they'll recognize a reverence in a certain type of way. They will yield that power, you know, a lot of times to their advantage and a lot of times at a woman disadvantage um so i'm glad that you really you really brought that up because as i was doing my research it was blowing my mind a little bit i was like i'm a little more on the face like i don't even know if i want to shout them out all the way because you know, i don't know i wouldn't be kidding with them that stuff if they was here today because i would feel some type of way um right. but yeah 
So, of course, like black women do, we step in and clean up and handle everything. So, Huey, knowing that, you know, Elaine had had the gusto to get it done, he's like, hey, I need you to hold it down. You know, he had all these other men he could have relinquished power or control or leadership to, but who did he who did he relinquish it to? Elaine Brown. So, I think that says a lot about just her as a woman and what her capabilities and her gifts and her talents were, right? You know, because he had to dip on out. But it's like, well, why they even charge you once for killing a prostitute? Like, what was you even doing a prostitute? But anyway. We 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 we're not gonna go there. Um so you know right. with him not today, not right now. <laughs> not today. Uh with with him fleeing and then moving her, um, you know, into that position of power was really like a pivotal moment for, for for any woman in the black power movement. Um, you know, like we said, most of the time they even though we had been like the force of like dynamic change for, you know, for social and racial justice, most of the times we have just been overshadowed, right? So I think about the women who are subjected to, you know, the breakfast programs because everybody had duties and responsibilities within the Black Panther Party. So a lot of times women weren't privy to a lot of information or plans or thoughts or what we thought wasn't, you know, valued. We just had to do, like, I guess the lowly work. Um, so, yeah, for at that time for him to choose a woman to for lead the Panther was truly, really, really revolutionary because it, had, it never happened before then and it never happened after that again. Um you know, so even she said, I remember one of the famous quotes from her book, A Taste of Power, a Black Woman Story, she said, and I quote, I have all the guns and the money. I can withstand challenge from without and from within. So that's what she started her speech of, like her first meeting with the Black Panther Party. Like, listen, I'm in here. So and she continues on to say, I haven't, she was like, I'm in these streets. Like, I got it all. Like, what y'all trying to talk about? We talking about guns and butter or what? Um... But she continued on. She said, I haven't called you together to make threats, comrades. I'm calling this meeting simply to let you know the realities of our situation. The fact is, comrade Huey is in exile. The other fact is, I'm taking his place until we make it possible for him to return. Because this is how black women do. We just come in like, everybody sit down and be quiet. Let me tell you how this song goes. <laughs> like, right. Everybody listen. Everybody Mama's home. Right. Um... So, yeah, um, so, and she continues on and says, because she get cold-blooded, wouldn't she say, my leadership cannot be challenged. I will lead our party both above ground and underground. I will lead the party not only in furthering our goals, but also in defending the party by any means. It's like, what is this? So can you imagine being in the audience like, whoa, okay. Um, okay. So, yeah, so she she stayed in power until Huey P. Um, Huey P. Newton returned. Um, you know, he came back, um, and when he came back, you know, one of the, the pivotal things that really, um, well, when he came back in 1977, and he, when he came back from exile in Cuba, he, he would be new and approved the beating of a black party, a black Panther party member by the name of Regina Davis, who was the administrator mm-hmm. of one of the black Panther schools for, for like mm-hmm. the young kids, right? So, mm-hmm. so she wrote, Elaine Brown wrote just from her experience in her book um, that Davis, Regina Davis was hospitalized with a broken jaw from the beating. So basically, Hugh P. Newton, because they needed, you know, some type of say-so or go for him since he was the leader. And, you know, I've heard, I've read in my research, read different things. At one point, he just, the Black Panther Party, the whole movement changed because he basically turned into, like, his own personal army of soldiers to do whatever he wanted them to do, right? So I think they got lost mm-hmm. in the sauce a little bit. Um, so, yeah, so they, 
you know, they had to approve the beating for her because she did something. She chastised somebody in some type of way or something they feel like a woman didn't have the right to do, which is crazy to me. So they, her punishment was for her to get a beating. But when you think about a beating by one man is a lot. Can you imagine multiple men beating you? Like, Girl. you must be my yeah. brother. Was we not just outside yeah. protesting and marching and defending and feeding these children? Was I not just standing next to you? Did I, do I not have your back? Do I not support you? Do I not make it possible for you to go and do the things that you're doing? You're going to beat me? And right. no. Um, so, yeah, basically they broke her jaw. They beat her up really bad. Um, you know, and so for Elaine Brown, she said she really took that as a signal that, you know, the words Panther and Comrade had basically taken on gender connotations, like, you know, denoting the, the inferiority in the females that were a part of Black Panther of the Black Panther Party movement. So, you know, she said she confronted Newton about the beating. He refused to back down, so she decided to resign, and that was the end of her her of her of her time in the Black Panther Party. She packed her stuff up and she left Oakland and she moved to L.A. Like just out of there because she she said that it had changed and she couldn't be a part of anything that really wasn't representing her. Or she knew at any moment if she did something that they didn't like or improve of, that she could be treated the same way. Right. Right. Well, good good on her for packing her stuff and getting up and leaving. And once again, you know, being ready and being down for the cause. But when it's not appropriate or when shit goes sour, having a voice to speak up, because I know that is definitely not an easy thing to do. Right. So, speaking so. of, yes, yeah, speaking of things not easy to do, um, that brings me to who I chose. Um well, the first woman that I chose to highlight, and that's Anita Hill. And so um, basically uh, one of Anita's quotes is, many of us has experienced this, but we don't really know what it is. We don't know the name for it, and we don't know how to handle it. And what she's talking about is sexual harassment. So if you're not familiar with Anita Hill, she is a U.S. attorney. She's also an academic professor of social policy, law, and women's studies. And in 1991, she was actually the first woman to ever come forward and present um, a sexual harassment case. There was actually no name for this for sexual harassment until 1991. There was actually no uh, sexual harassment policies or procedures in the workplace um, until her case. And so, like I said, in 1991, um, President Bush had actually, um, uh, he was in the process of appointing Clarence Thomas to be the United States um, Senate, and he was going to be replacing um, Thurgood Marshall as the first African-American Supreme Court Justice. So he was basically having a hearing because, of course, that is a very high title and it's a big deal. And so during uh, Clarence's hearing, Anita Hill, she had worked on his administration and he had, you know, did several advances to talk to her and he had harassed her in several ways. And so when it came time for his hearing, for people to bring forth cases um, that would kind of, you know, bring light to his character, she stepped forward. Um, there's actually a movie um, that was redone on HBO and 
um, what the girl name is? Carrie Washington played Anita Hill. Um, and they kind of highlighted that whole story. If you want to go and watch it, I would suggest that you, you do watch it. And so after she, you know, was the first woman to come forward with this and, you know, she's going up against the president of the United States, somebody who was about to be in a lot of power, letting them know the things that she went through as a woman and how she was sexually harassed. And I hate to say this, but at the end of the whole debacle, he wasn't charged and he was still given the highest seat in the nation. He was still granted to be the Supreme Court justice. So that just goes again to show you how black women, we stick our necks out, you know, we we speak up for ourselves and we are not heard. Our cries are not heard. However, even though he was still given that and he was not charged with sexual harassment, you know, there was uh, legislation passed after the hearing. Also, there were several thousands of harassment complaints that started to come forward after that and other women started to tell their stories. Also, um, more importantly, there was momentum to the movement. And I think that's always important. You know, there's always has to be somebody to step out and be the first and get that ball rolling. And I mean, I can, I don't think I can name one woman who has not been sexually harassed, whether it's walking down the street and cat calls or somebody making an inappropriate joke in the office, like it's something that we face on a daily basis. So to know that a daily basis, that, <laughs> daily basis. So to know that, you know, the first woman to step forward and to, to get the ball rolling on this, to call somebody out on this was a black woman is amazing to me. And also what I would like to point out is that uh, Clarence Thomas was a black man. And so when Anita came forward to, to testify against him, the first thing that people in the community did is, oh, you're going against the community. How could you do this? Like, that's a black man. That's your brother. Why would you do this to him when he could have this high position? And it's like, wow, really? <laughs> like, what about the vice versa? Like, I'm his, I'm his black sister, and he didn't think about that when he was sexually harassing me. So it just goes to show, like you mentioned earlier in your story, how we prioritize the struggle, how they put her needs and, you know, the things that she faced with her sexual harassment case at the bottom because him being Supreme Court justice was more important. Uh, so that's, that's a need to heal. <laughs> yeah. You know um, what? I don't fool with Clarence. Um, I ain't never no, no. That's first of all, let me tell you this, and this may be controversial and because I find myself in deep conversations with people all the time about this one statement that I'm about to make, but here it goes. I don't trust no man, no black man, that's in a relationship with another woman of another ethnicity that's not black. I just don't. And I believe that black people should be with black people and white people should be with white people. Now, am I, am I, I never see. Now, am I racist? No, because I don't hate them. I wouldn't bring any unnecessary. You're not racist, but you are biased. I am, I am biased. I am biased in that sense, right? So that's something that I'm firm on, and I find myself in conversations about that all the time. And people just like me, yeah. I'm just like, I don't care. Um, I believe that we, we belong with each other. Um, and I believe that the more that we are together, the more we can really, really move move the culture forward. Like, you know, anytime a black man says to me that he is for the culture and for the people moving us forward, I think the greatest representation for me to believe it and to know that is by your actions. And if you choose to stand next to a woman who is not black, I'm sorry, I'm a little I'm a little slower to believe what you're saying, bro. I can't feel like you're totally 
bought in because that's your opportunity to really show me what you believe, what you're standing on, if you, if you, how much you respect the black woman, how do you recognize us, and what reverence do you hold us in? Um, so I'm always a little slow because I'm just like, I don't know. I'm a little shaky. And sometimes when, you know, I'm really a fan of, you know, what some black man is doing, I always start researching because I want to see, like, who is his wife? Because I know the role that we play in the black man being the black man and being powerful and moving forward and progressing. So I'm always like, well, who is this? Because he lit. So let me see who she is. So when I go to do the research, sometimes I see, uh-oh. <laughs> you know, my sister like, okay, hmm. So then I'm going to do more research. But so it is biased in a sense, but it's not. A, I don't want it to be taken as a negative thing. I just believe that we could do more together if we come together and move as a united force. I think that would be a great example to the kids who are watching us and to the world, like that we really truly respect and value each other and we believe that we can move forward together. Um, and that's not knocking anybody as, you know, I guess, in a relationship with a white man because I know some people who are in interracial relationships and they love it and you know they also showed me some of the grievances that they have and some of the ongoing struggles that they have you know with not being able to relate and not really understanding the culture and things of that nature or not knowing how to say and what to say certain things or how do they act when they go around this person's family so I've had those conversations with people as well um, and even that too when you with a black man sometimes you gotta just you go around his family too shit because you be like okay your mama looking at me mm-hmm. crazy. You're supposed to give me the state like, they don't want me here. So it's not just to say it's just if you're in a racial, you know, relationship, but that's just, you know, that's just one of my things. So Clarence, I don't know. I don't, I don't trust Clarence. <laughs> so if you, if you didn't get all of that from the, from the kids, if you didn't know, Clarence's life is like. Um, so I, I understand what you're saying. I don't agree with it completely and I think that's the beauty of having open dialogue with people is that you're not going to agree with everything that they say um I I believe that you know people are going to love who they love and so um if you so happen to be Tyrone and you fall in love with Becky I'm not going to look at you sideways however the moment you open your mouth and say I do not date black women because XYZ are only date white women are Mexican women are Asian women exclusively because black women are this is that and the third that's when I'm going to look at you stupid because you can like whatever you like that could be your preference that's what you're attracted to you know no judgment there so go ahead celebrate that but you don't have to put somebody else down especially when your mama and your sister are a black woman and they, they look just like you so that's right. that's the only time where it gets kind of sketchy for me but I, I definitely you know wouldn't distrust a black man based off of um, I, I, I would distrust him based off of who he is joined to now that's talking about the person's character the things that they believe in and their moral belief but not so much their their race or their gender but that's neither here nor there that's just uh, some of the key and Leticia opinions <laughs> that we decided to insert in <laughs> right, all right. these opinions I, our own is not a re- representation of anything or anybody else <laughs> right like, right. That's what like, they belong to us. Uh, but yeah, yeah, yeah. So Clarence, mm, shout out to Anita though uh, for for forging ahead, right? For not letting that to really define who she is and what she contributes. Even though in some ways people associate her totally with that, right? Um, but the lady mm-hmm. lives a full life after that. Sis so ain't stopped. This is a testament of how black women no. do. Like ain't nothing can stop us or limit us. Like I'm gonna keep pushing. 
Right. She's an activist. You know, she's a woman uh, all about women. She pushes women's studies. She also helps with other sexual harassment cases. So like you said, she's definitely moving and shaking still. Did you want to bring up your second person? Did you want to do yes. that? Did you want to get the people? Uh, Go ahead. Let them know who she is. Okay. Yeah. So the second woman um, that I want to tell you guys about today, her name is Anna Arnold Hedman. So she is a civil rights leader. She's a politician and a writer. Um, so her the the most notable thing about her is she became the first African American woman in the in the history of New York um, to hold a mayoral cabinet position. So, okay, Anna did a lot of stuff, right? You know, um, she she was also the first African-American student at Hamline University, which is a college in Minnesota. Um, so after she left college, she went on to become a teacher in Mississippi, and that's when she really, like, started to experience this, unfortunately, that side of racism that she wasn't used to. Um, so... One thing and another thing that really sparked her interest in politics is while she was in college getting her BA in English, she heard W.E.B. Du Bois speak, which that's what inspired her to want to become an education educator as well as get more involved in, um, you know, black people in our movement. Um, she became an executive director of a black branch of YWCA in New Jersey, which at that time it was a, not a lot of us. Most of the branches and jobs that she took on after that, she would be like the only black woman or the first black woman there. Everything was still segregated versus being integrated. Um, she served as the national director of the National Committee for Permanent um, Fair Employment Practices Commission. She was the assistant dean of women at Howard University. She was associate editor for the New York Age paper. She was a consultant um, for public relations department. And she also helped on Harry Truman's 1948 presidential uh, campaign. So, Auntie was at work, okay? Like, all the stuff that this lady was doing in this time was, like, unheard of for a black person to be able to do, let alone a woman. So for her to be a trailblazer, to go in and be the first woman in a lot of these places and a lot of these positions was, like, that was monumental for us at the time, right? So in the time that we're fighting for black progression and still have to fight for black woman progression, right, um, I consider her a real trailblazer. And even in 1963, she helped A. Philip Randolph and Bayard Rustin plan the March on Washington. And she was the only woman among the key event organizers. She was the only woman. That's like, come on. And you, you, we know that that movement brought over 250,000 activists to Washington, D.C., right? Um, right. And then after the 1966, she became the co-founder, um, a co-founder of the National Organization for Women. So... Like, when most women, you know, I was even asking questions and I was doing the research, like, do you know who this woman is? And most women that I asked, like, just didn't know who she was. Like, didn't know mm-hmm. all that she contributed and what she had done. Um, you know, so she's held so many different titles in her time and just going forth to trailblaze and set new paths and beats. And I, the main thing that stuck out really is just to be, she was fearless. Like, I don't know, I would probably be on the fence a little bit, like, you know, going into these different places, but she was fearless because she believed in what she was doing. And ultimately, I think that she was dedicated and committed to, like, moving black people forward. Um, so, yeah, she, um, of course, she was, she held several memberships in organizations, National Urban League, the NAACP, Community Council of the City of New York, Child Study Association, 
Um, she served on the National Council of Churches. What else she do? She just, this lady did everything. She wrote um, two books, The Trumpet of Sounds in 1964, and then The Gift of Chaos in 1977. Um, and so she lived until January 17, 1990. Um, she ended up in a greater Harlem nursing home, and she died at the age of 90. And I was, when I read that at first, I was thinking, like, how did she end up in a nursing home? Like, where was her family? Like, you know, where was somebody, like, supporting her? Um, you know, and all of that stuff. For a woman who has contributed and given so much, you would think, like, her latter days, you know, she would be surrounded by. And who was to say if her family, you know, was there or not? But, like, you would think that she would be, I guess, I always think elderly should always be at that time. I know at the time with my grandparents, I was always around and, like, my family, like, we fought. Like, we was like, nobody's going to nursing home. Like, I don't know who's voting for that, but it don't matter. Like, because we believe in taking care of, you know, our elders in that time as they begin to, like, transition or prepare to transition. So um, that was my second woman, Anna Arnold Hedgman. So when you get a chance, definitely do your own research on her because she has contributed a lot to the progression and the movement of black people. Yeah, definitely. We'll be looking into her some more, and I hope you all do, too. And um, for my second person, I chose Audrey Lord. And so, um, you know, February is like in the middle. I'm does in the middle of January and March. Forget what I was going to say. <laughs> However, in January, they have the Women's March. And then we all know that March is Women's History Month. And we know that. Like the reason we're talking about women today is because women have been so trailblazing and the feminist movement. Uh, you definitely can't talk about women without talking about the feminist movement and the things that are women doing. Now, I personally do not identify as a feminist just because a lot of the times some of the feminist beliefs tend to, to favor the white women and their issues and their struggles versus, um, you know, black women, Latino women or Asian women. So I don't identify as a feminist. I identify as intersectionalist, but that's neither here nor there. But I chose Audre Lorde because she is like the epitome of all of that. Um, she was a writer, a feminist, a womanist, a librarian, a civil rights activist, but she's most known for her poetry. And one of her, um, Famous quote she's known for is, I mean, I recognize that my power as well as my primary oppressions come as a result of my blackness as well as my womanness, and therefore my struggles on both of these forefronts are inseparable. So if you follow me on social media, you know that lately I've been talking a lot um, about having to toe the line between your your womanness and your blackness and how a lot of the times black women are put in a position where we have to choose between the two and more oftentimes than not we end up choosing the blackness and putting our woman needs to the side as we see the case with Adita Hill and so these are the certain topics that Audre Lorde talked about. Her poems largely dealt with issues with civil rights, feminism, the exploration of black female identity. She also um, confronted a lot of important crises in America like uh, racism, homophobia, the insensitivity in the healthcare and relationships between sexes as well as parenthood. She was also identified as a lesbian and had two kids. Um, so she's like the perfect person for intersectionality. And if you're not familiar with intersectionality, has is basically what feminism should be. So it is the belief that women and all sexes should be granted equal rights, but it's also understanding that we have intersection. Some of our struggles or some of our identifiers intersect 
um, but that should still be represented. So me as a black woman, like those are the two things that intersect. And so somebody who was like a Latino lesbian woman, those would be their three intersectionalities. However, each of those components should still be represented. Um, so some other things about uh, Audrey, as I mentioned before, she touched on a lot of things um, in the community that people kind of weren't talking about. You know, this was kind of like the back end of the civil rights movement, um, the end of like the Black Party Panther movement. So it's like we're starting to see a little bit more wiggle room for black people, but not that much, especially not for the women, or especially not for the LGBT community. So she actually opened up a health center um, in New York, the only one of its kind that gave medical health to the entire population, but most importantly to the LGBT community. And it was designed for people who didn't have the ability to pay. So it was kind of like your first Obamacare, <laughs> in a sort of sense to say. And then she also did the Audrey Lord Project in Brooklyn in 1994. Um, which basically was a community um, like activist program that kind of focused issues around AIDS and HIV and pro-immigrant activism um, because she was also the child of immigrants that came to America. So, like I said, she touched on a lot of different things just based on the struggles that she had to deal with, you know, for, was it her sexuality, her race, her gender, or, you know, her parents being immigrants. And so I feel like, you know, a lot of things that she talks about, and especially if you go and read a lot of her poems or her books, um, she just talks about having to fight multiple fights. And I think that's a lot of people, especially a lot of black women today, we have to fight multiple fights. And so she, you know, speaks to that, gives light to it, how to get through those things. And so that is Audrey Lord. <laughs> so that's... <laughs> Uh, breath, the last order. I, I know it's like there's so much to say about the the women that we we talked about tonight, um, and there's so many other women who you know are amazing, like Joyce Bonda, Angela Davis, Rosalind Brewer, Maya Angelou, Ida B. Wells, Margaret Murray Washington, Mary McLeod Bethune, Bessie Coleman, Dorothy Irene Heights, Bridges Ruby D. Like. Zora Neale Hurston, like we could just go on and on and on about amazing black women and the things that they contributed. And even more so, you know, we're starting to see a new generation of black women who are, you know, prominent figures and mean a lot and do a lot for our community. And so we're definitely going to highlight them further on uh, throughout the month. So be on the lookout for those. Um, but as I mentioned earlier, we're just trying to approach black history from an unconventional standpoint. And so don't forget about the women, you guys. We're very important. They're very important. And a lot of times their stories go unheard and untold. Right. But it doesn't have to be that way if we just make it our responsibility to bring awareness to other black women. So one thing that Latisha and I want to do um, in each one of these episodes is to leave for some type of action step. So we each are going to go through and leave our charge or our challenge to you as the listener. Um, and with this particular episode, you know, I challenge each person listening to really get to know the women that they are in close relationships with, whether it's your mother, whether it's your aunt, you know, whether it's your sister, your friend, but get to know them in a way that you may not know them now, right? And you, and I guarantee you, the more you get to know them, that you will begin to see their power um, and see them in all their glory as well. Um, 
And then for this one, I have a charge to keep as well. I would say, you know, the charge for anybody listening is to really, to really like uplift and respect like every black woman that you come into contact with, whether it's somebody that you know or you don't know, that you have a relationship with, um, or you don't, you know what I mean? But to really uplift them and to hold them in a high regard, because when you begin to respect people differently, when you begin to see them differently, you respect them differently, right? So that's my charge to really just uplift every black woman that you come in contact with, right? If it's a compliment or if it's some type of physical help, if it's prayer, if it's like connecting them with somebody, but moving forward in the month of February, how many women can you compliment? Can you help? Can you uplift? Can you support? So that is my charge to keep, um, TT, you can share with them your challenge or your charge to keep or both. Um, my charge for you all would be to be empathetic with other women. Um, so many times our voices are silenced, as I mentioned earlier, or we're not able to tell our whole truth because we're too busy trying to protect our blackness and, and push the culture forward. And sometimes some, some of the other struggles that we deal with can be seen as divisive. And so we kind of keep hush or mum about those. And so, you know, sometimes that shows in the way that we act, um, whether it be like an attitude towards a certain subject or topic. And a lot of times, you know, we get that stigmatism, oh, the angry black woman. And rightfully so, because we go through a lot of shit that we can't talk about sometimes or that we're not able to share sometimes. And so you know as a woman the things that you go through. So instead of judging another woman, I, I just ask you just to look at her and kind of see beyond the surface and kind of just identify with her on, on, on a personal and another level. And also research some of these these women and, and men as well and the women in their lives and the things that they weren't able to talk about, like Coretta Scott King and, and Malcolm X, I mean, excuse me, Martin Luther King's infidelity are even Betty Shabazz and, you know, um, Malcolm X's possible homosexuality. And I, I know I hate to say all this because maybe you didn't know these were things <laughs> that were out there, but, but they are, and you should look into them as well as, right, and as we mentioned earlier, with the Black Panther Party, them raping black women, um, you know, look into those things and just learn, learn, learn something that is that is not talked about, especially when it comes to to women. So that's my charge for you all: just to be empathetic and go beyond the surface. Yay. And I think that's that's it for episode two. <laughs> so. Um, yeah, that's it. I mean, of course, there's more. Please share with us if you guys have any other women that you uh, would like to be highlighted on our our platforms or, you know, in in this segment that we're doing. Please let us know. Email, direct messages. You can contact me at LeticiaHunt.com. You can get to my Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and all social media handles from there. And Nikia, how can they reach you? You can reach me at my site at NikiaPope.com, N-I-K-I-A. P-O-P-E dot com. All social media handles Nakia Pope as well. Um, you can check out my individual podcast, Extra Strategy Podcast on iTunes. Um, if you go to my site, you'll be able to access my videos. Um, follow me on social media as well as TT. Um, I always like to think that we share things on our feed that's empowering and encouraging. Um, and just be on the lookout for the next podcast because we have more of these coming um, for our special edition for the month of February. Yes, yes, yes. So thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you all next time. 
You are tuned into the Two Shots and Talk podcast. Two Shots and Talk podcast. You are tuned into the Two Shots and Talk podcast.